Right on radio. Right on radio. Hey everyone, welcome to Right On Radio. Today is an episode that you're going to want to share with your friends. We're going to uncover some very deep truths with someone who I personally consider a hero in the effort against child trafficking and the, uh, I don't even want to call it genocide because that word is worn out. I want to call it child rape murder. And, and so on and so forth. We're seeing a systematic elimination of indigenous people and it's gone, where it comes from and who it's being run by is going to shock some of you. So first, I just want to bring on Jesse, as always, the co-host of the show. Good morning to you, Jesse. Yeah, good morning. I'm so excited about today. So it's going to be a great conversation. It is. And, and listen, without further ado, his website is murderbydecree.com. He's a prolific author and he's unafraid. He's unapologetic. He has been in this fight for, I think, about 26 years now, if my calculations are correct. And he has gone up against the giants and he's still throwing the stones. So without further ado, Kevin and Nat, welcome to Right On Radio. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, we appreciate everything you do, Kevin. And, uh, you know, I think right now, you know, people are really starting to realize that this stuff is real and, and it's on a massive scale what has been going on, not only in Canada, but around the world. And, you know, although a lot of, uh, you know, most of our listeners are in the U.S., uh, what I think some of the things that might came, come out today is Canada has been a pipeline to the U.S., uh, in many, many ways. And uh, th this stuff needs to come out. It needs to be understood because when darkness cannot exist, where light is. So Kevin, I, I just want to start with, you know, how you got your fingers on the pulse and, uh, and kind of your beginnings of the fight. Well, frankly, it goes back. I remember as a teenager, my first contact in Canada with Native people was we did an exchange in our United Church group in Vancouver, went up to Northern British Columbia, a village called Hazleton, which is now along what they call the Highway of Tears. A lot of Native people go missing along there, which we can get into why. But um, it was just this raw experience seeing how Native people live in Canada and the poverty and the disease. And the, the you know, it was just, it opened my mind. I was 14 and, and I, in a way that opened the door to let to all of this. But in my 30s, I was ordained as a United Church minister, and I was married, and I had two young daughters. And I got a job at uh, Port Alberni, which is uh, on Vancouver Island. It's right in the middle. It's the uh, I didn't know it at the time. I learned quickly. Uh, it was really the center of the last big missionary invasion in the late 1800s. Uh, the, these groups of natives there on the West Coast were not, they were still independent. They had their own traditions and everything, so they were heavily targeted um by the state and its its allies in the catholic anglican united churches and i was a united church clergyman by the way um and so you know the very first um meeting i had with the folks in that church when they hired me it was a dying congregation there was only about 10 people in the pews on sunday and i had had a history in vancouver doing a lot of community ministry street ministry i knew a lot of native people in that so uh they wanted me to, as they put it, bring new blood into the church. So I did. I went out and, and I took the congregation up to 100 people within six months. 
And we're a thriving congregation, but one of the groups I reached out to were the native people because they were nowhere to be seen, even though a third of the population was Aboriginal. They weren't, they never mixed. It was very separated. Like the way, you know, you imagine the deep South, um, just total segregation. And um, so I set out to change that. I, be, I had an open door policy. We opened a food bank. And I remember the incident I talk about in my documentary, Unrepentant, the first native home I visited he was a native fisherman called Danny Gus, and he lived just down the road from the former, what they call residential schools. They were really internment camps for children, um, and half of whom never came back from there. And uh, I remember talking to Danny um, at, at, as we were kind of talking over lunch, and I asked him why there were no native people in any of the white churches. And he didn't say anything for a while and kept looking out the window at the site of the former school. and. And he finally said, uh, when I was in there, they killed my best friend. They beat him to death and he's buried in the hills behind the school. And that's why they don't want us in their churches, right? It was like that blatant bang right in my face. Every time I visited a native home, I was told stories like that. Now that was in the fall of 1992. And my reaction was to write a letter right away to the church to say, you know, I'm hearing all these stories. This was before the lawsuits began three years later. And so uh, the attitude of all of the churches was they're lying. They're making it up. We never did these things. They're just angry at us for taking their land. They're making up these stories. So that seemed very strange to me. And I kept um, exploring about that. And the thing that finally got me fired about over two years later was I found that the, the church had been, which was a common practice, they would um, grab big acres of land, uh, native land, and then sell it off to their corporate friends. And um, of course, none of the money would ever go back to the native people. It was just this deal in stolen native land with the usual kind of cover up that went with it. And I wrote a letter to the church about that because our policy said, if we have native land in our possession, it's gonna go back to those people. Um, and I simply cited church policy. The next thing I knew I was out, uh, fired. I was told I had to retrain um, and even go undergo psychiatric evaluation. Or, <laughs> You know, uh, the case, usual yeah. thing. We're about reprogramming. Yes. Yeah. 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 They call it re-education in China. You know, just <laughs> like getting your thoughts straight, not challenging the church anymore. So, you know, naturally, I thought that was absurd. I refused. I was put on ice. I wasn't allowed to work anywhere else in the church. They then went to my wife, Anne, and um, offered to pay for her divorce if she left me. Now, of course, at the, at the time, it seemed really bizarre they would do that, but it's standard, you know, over the years, you learn that this is how you deal with a whistleblower. Um, you attack their family, their livelihood, and they usually crumple because what was on the horizon that following year, the first lawsuits were, were coming down, brought by survivors of these really death camps um, against the churches and government. And they knew I was sitting on all of this evidence. Um, Native people had shared with me stories of what went on there, the horrible things, including medical experiments, sterilization programs, things that are pretty much gleaned out of the mainstream press. Um, all of the things pointing to, to genocide, to the deliberate plan to wipe out a whole people. And, um, you know, after I got thrown out of the church, I lost custody of my children. I was pretty much penniless and blacklisted. I began to work with Native people a lot more because my trust, their trust level of me went way up. Uh, I remember one guy said, if, if, you know, you, if the church did that to you, you must be do doing something right. So I think I, you know, I'm willing to talk to you about these things because they saw that I, I was paying a price. I wasn't just some do-gooder coming in to help them. Right. Mm -hmm. 
So, I mean, that's how it all began. There was a whole subsequent history that led to this stuff coming out and it's still coming out with these recent mass graves. Um, and that's another story, yeah. yeah. So just just one quick follow-up. I, I can't pass by the church, which is pro-marriage, according to scripture, offered to pay for your divorce. Her divorce, yeah, she secretly- Her, her divorce. Yeah, like she. And then they, um, then they helped. They wanted to help split apart the family. And of course, we know this is the the modus operandi. Yeah. Uh, with the whistleblower, you're absolutely right. We had one on uh, earlier this week, and uh, or on Tuesday actually, and uh, the same thing happened to him. In fact, it went further. They killed two of his sons. Well, I learned the hard way. You know, the best education, as they say, is a black eye. I mean, you learn from your own experience quite yeah. directly. I denied my own experience for a while. I just, to me, it, it was too unreal, but I couldn't deny eventually that, you know, the church's first loyalty is to its money, to its status under the law, its relationship with the state. And that's how they could, they could so willingly wipe out so many children. I mean, if they could do that to one of their own, their insider and destroy his family, of course, you know, that taught me that, well, then there's got to be credence to a lot of these stories of children going missing because mm -hmm. <clears throat> look at the kind of people we're dealing with, right? So yeah, go ahead, Jesse. I was just gonna say, you know, um, I don't think a lot of people are aware of of some of those select groups, and they kind of keep them segregated and hidden. And you know, I know the summit. Um, I think it was back in 2019, um, 2020, when um, Trump administration did a summit, and that addressed, you know, part of that they had the individuals who were working with the Native Americans, bringing forward the issues there and the, um, you know, the stuff that was being done to, um, you know, abuse children and to sell and, um, you know, use them as a type of currency, you know, in the United States and other places. So th this really is, it's one of the largest problems, you know, beyond the immigration children that are coming in. Um, but it is happening, you know, where, in my experience, um, the churches that set up breeder programs where, you know, these segregated groups, um, the girls would be kidnapped at a very young age and then used until basically they died as breeders. And so they would keep the children being born for ritual or for experiments uh, different things like that, but they'd have no birth certificate, no way to track them. Mm -hmm. um, basically, they were, you know, non-existent children in the world's eyes because nobody was aware of them. Right. That, that That's very much the kinds of things that I began to oh, discover uh, after I was thrown out of the church. The stories that people were sharing in these healing circles that formed in the downtown area of Vancouver where I had worked, um, they, they were describing those kind of cultic rituals, child trafficking, constant stories like that coming out. We even found uh, evidence in one of the university libraries where I began to, I tried to retrain and get my PhD and that too was blocked by the church. Uh, they made sure I didn't get any funding at the University of British Columbia. Um, but we found documents that confirmed all of that, that satanic ritual killings were operating for many years in all of the churches. Primarily the, the Roman Catholic Church, of course, because they mm -hmm. set up a lot of these things. It was based on an old Jesuit model um, going back centuries. And we also eventually, when I went to Europe and helped set up the tribunal there 
in the crimes of church and state, the one that prosecuted and helped force Pope Benedict out, um, we found letters and references to this thing called the Ninth Circle, mm -hmm. uh, which is a child sacrificial cult in the Catholic Church going back at least 300 years. So, I mean, it's a system that the top people in these churches are all expected to be part of. Um, they're all aware of it, right? It's not yeah. like, it's kind of like today when the Canadian government is pretending they didn't know about these mass graves, right? And the right. media, it's a big thing. Well, excuse me, they dug them. <laughs> They've got a whole record of it. Why wouldn't they know about it, right? Yeah. For those who aren't aware, would you uh, just give a brief description of what the Ninth Circle is? It, um, it's a cult that refers to the nine circles of hell. In Dante's Inferno, he describes um, the ninth or lowest circle of hell is where Satan resides, and it's where people are sent if they betray a sacred trust. And the rituals within the ninth circle are based on really energy vampirism. It's the belief that you can feed off the energy of the slaughtered innocent. You take a newborn or a young child, and you the most basic trust is children's trust in us and is you know that whole relationship and you what they do is they betray it they they ritually torture rape uh slowly kill and then cannibalize the child and there's a whole ritual two um eyewitnesses came forward when we were working in europe uh two uh, dutch women uh tos nienhaus and Anne-Marie von bienberg they were raised within this cult it's intergenerational and it involved you know top royal, Dutch royal uh, family members, the British, the Belgians, very extensive network in Europe, very old. Um, and again, going back really to Roman times, because it's based on, to some degree on sacrificial rituals that happened in the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and we've documented all of that at murderbydecree.com. Very good. So and one of the things that I think our listeners are very aware of this, uh, the people that participate in these sort of things, you, this is how they rise in power because the more, uh, well, let's put it this way, you know, back uh, a few decades ago, you could cheat on your wife and they could have film on you. And as long as there's some blackmail or something like that, you can go up. Uh, nowadays, that means nothing. And it's gotten worse and worse. And that more and more people are getting into the sort of thing that uh, Kevin just described. It has not been a declining industry. It's a, an aggressive industry. But Kevin, in particular, I want to talk about the schools and what they're used for and why the Aboriginal people were targeted. And, and I just want to make a quick note. Uh, the Aboriginal people, you know, are probably an easier target because they're not part of what we call standard society. So they're not looked at, they're not paid attention to. They're people. They are people. The, we, no one is worth more than another soul. And what these people are being used for and what's been happening to their society is absolutely crimes against humanity. So tell us a bit about the schools. Well, they're really based on a very old practice going back many centuries and uh, even to the Roman Empire, the idea that um, there's people inside our circle and anyone outside isn't human. They don't have the right, you know, it's an old doctrine and this comes out of Rome originally. And the idea that uh, and many papal decrees have said this and they've never been revoked. They're still in practice that says 
if you're not a Roman Catholic, you've lost the right to live. You can be converted. Uh, this was a policy uh, the church had all over the world. As a matter of fact, it's a little known fact that the first slaves brought out of Africa, it, it was in the year 1441, and a Portuguese explorer made a gift of 10 slaves to the Pope in Rome. And that wasn't accidental because the papal doctrine said um, that you don't have a soul unless you've been baptized a Catholic, and therefore you're not really human. They had a term terra nullius, a land of no one. So they literally believed there was nobody, no inhabitants in these lands because they weren't human. And so they could do whatever they want to them. And that's, you know, that entered into, into law in America and Canada and other countries that said that Native people didn't have the right to their own land because they weren't Christians. That you see that in legal cases going back centuries. And so there, with that in place, naturally anything could be done. Still under the law in Canada, you, you know, you mentioned this situation in the States with Native people. Canadian Indians are a lot worse off because at least in America, you have the right to become a citizen, um, you know, but in Canada, you don't. It's um, under the Indian Act, uh, you, you're awarded the state. That means you're a child under the law. You're not a citizen. So that old idea is still in place in the law in Canada. That's why so many Native people still die. I mean, um, you know, there, there's constant stories of people just being killed en masse by the police or other means being forced off their land in northern BC uh, to get the resources and that. And yet there's no consequence. No one ever goes to jail for it. Over 60,000 children were legally murdered in Canada. And no one person's ever gone to trial for any of those deaths. That's because you have a system of institutionalized genocide. And so you said legally murdered? Yeah, it was, a, it was like in Nazi Germany. There was nothing illegal about what Hitler did. Um, there was nothing illegal in Canada about this because they passed laws that said every Native child had to be rounded up and put in one of these places or their parents would go to jail. And the parents even had to sign away guardianship rights to, uh, to the principal. You know, it's really amazing. I just, I don't know if it'll show up on here, but these are excerpts from my book, murderbydecree.com. That's an article from the Ottawa Citizen newspaper in November, 1907. And it's describing a death rate of as high as 69% in one of the Indian schools in Western Canada. Well, that's, you know, seven out of 10 children dying after one year, that's massive killing off. And yet people know that 107 years later, they're acting like they didn't know about it. Well, that's because the, the crime is so institutionalized and so normal in people's minds that it's not seen as a crime. And when, you know, it really blew me away when we began to bring out the truth of what was happening to these children, total indifference. We even opened a mass grave in Brentford, Ontario, and had in, in 2011 with the Mohawk elders there, we found bones that one of which proved to be human, totally blacked out of the Canadian press. Nobody covered it, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, that's the thing to understand that in our very psyche, it's not a big deal. When Native people die, Native children are mass. They're just uh, an abstraction. And that's why so much could be done, um, you know, in these death camps. And when you say death camps, uh, I've heard in an interview you did before uh, the tie-in with Operation Paperclip and the Nazis coming into Canada and performing some of the experiments. And, and that's what some of these schools were used for. Could you get into some detail about that? Oh, well, it's, it's fact you can read a number of things on Project Paperclip 
um, which referred to the secret program of bringing Nazi scientists and medical doctors and that into America, primarily through Canada. More Nazis came to Canada after World War II than any country in the world. They were given fake passports, brought in the back door. A lot of them went to work on the, the space program, um, but a lot of them also were used in these mind control, CIA-funded MKUltra mind control experiments uh, all over uh, Canada and Indian hospitals. Uh, you know, just down the road here, two miles from where I'm sitting, the Nanaimo Indian Hospital, there were uh, doctors operating. Uh, one of the survivors, um, Joan Morris, saw that an SS tattoo right there on the arm of one of these guys. Um, and so it was a barely concealed fact that a lot of these experiments were happening on not just Native children, but children in orphanages, um, youth detention centers. They were all fair game. Uh, really to try to find a way to create a slave population, to uh, to create people who just obey, like the perfect soldier, right, or worker ant. You just obey. And in fact, they developed in these Indian hospitals, they developed a drug called chlorpromazine, which they call, I know having worked in psych hospitals to pay my way through seminary, um, they, chlorpromazine is what they call a chemical lobotomizer. So it, it really creates kind of a, a drone you lose the ability to critically think and challenge, but you haven't lost consciousness. You still operate, but very much like a, you know, a controlled person. And they were using this on all the time, these experiments and many, many others that we've documented in the Indian schools. And, and not to mention the, the uh, indigenous people weren't allowed to use their own languages no. or anything like that. They're really eliminating them and, and then they would be put through pain threshold experiments. Yeah, many horrible things like that. It was standard that you, if anyone ever spoke the language, they were instantly tortured, imprisoned, or even killed for doing it. One of the reasons is, and you see, they're an oral culture. They never wrote anything down. So the, the dialect would determine the boundaries of, an, of a nation. So if you want to grab the resort, and this is what it was all about, it was about grabbing land and resources. You've got to confuse people's memories. Uh, you wipe out the language and nobody remembers anything. Uh, it's like what the Roman Empire did to the, my ancestors in, in the Druids in England. The first thing they did is they just they wiped out the Druids because they had the, the traditions and the memory. Um, almost 90% of Native people in, in Canada were wiped out. And I mean, that's an enormous death rate. Like, you know, when in Cambodia, when a quarter of the people were wiped out, People call that a horrible genocide. It's happening right in our backyard in a huge way. And again, it's not seen as a crime because it's equated with, you know, civilization. You know, this is just what happens. It's almost like it's conceived as an act of nature that, that people are wiped out, right? But now for the church's part, and I know Jesse has a tremendous amount of experience with the church and their involvement in this, but in Canada specifically, Kevin, how are they legally indemnified from being persecuted on this? Well, it's a long tradition of the whole relationship in the British Empire between church and state. Uh, like an anecdote on that, I had an ancestor in England. He was a, a free-thinking philosopher. His name is Peter Annett. And he, in the 1700s, he wrote a series of pamphlets. Uh, a lot like the American founding fathers, he was just questioning uh, orthodox doctrine like the trinity and things like that they threw him in prison uh at age 70 at hard labor under a thing in the, which is still a under the law it's still uh active called it's called blasphemous libel 
So if in Canada or England or anywhere in the Commonwealth, if you criticize the doctrines of traditional Christianity, you can go to jail for two years because an attack on the church is seen as an act of treason. That's an attack on the state. And church and state are like that. There's no separation in practice in Canada or any in that anywhere in the British Empire. So um, that's the first thing. The other thing is that um, they were specifically indemnified under the law when they were made. Uh, you see, in the 1890s, the the government stepped in and legalized all of these mission schools that were operating in the Aboriginal territories, and they were told outright that when you run these schools, you're indemnified. Um, you will never be held accountable for anything that happens there. It's like there was a blanket policy when you were rounding up children. It says in print, any force can be used up to and including death. So there was a license to kill really granted. And the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were the ones who were doing this. The very people now claiming to investigate these mass graves were created the mass graves. They put those children in the ground and now they're investigating their own crime scene because they're above the law. You know, that's, that's just the reality. So, it's that long history, but it's also something that's still in place very much legally in Canada. Jesse, did you ever see the activity coming down from Canada to where you were? Um, some, yes, we did have um, some of the things that took place at Gloria Vanderbilt's um, included some of the individuals uh, in the PM's family. Um, so they were part of that inner circle with um, what we called the Northern Quadrant. So uh, people in our government, um, like Pensy Wensi and HRC and her hubby, um, they were all highly connected um, in an inner circle. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing is, so we've always heard this separation of church and state and what Kevin is stating here is they're really in it together. Yeah. And so how high does this go? We know in the church, we know how high it goes. It goes right to the papal office. Mm -hmm. How high does it go in government? And is there anyone that you've identified or, or organizations even above the prime minister's office? Well, you know, the, the head of state in Canada is the Governor General, Richard Wagner, and he's the Queen's representative. He can remove the government at any time. It's the old colonial system, right? Um, now, the guy behind me here, William Coombs, I don't know if you can see that very well, but um, he was an eyewitness to um, the abduction of 10 children by Queen Elizabeth in, in 1964 at the very school that they're now digging the, uh, the you know, the mass grave, Kamloops, British Columbia. Catholic school. He saw Queen Elizabeth take 10 children away and they're never seen again. Um, there's other affidavits we have of people have seen the same thing happen at other schools in Salmon Arm, other places around British Columbia. So um, under her system of law, she's above the law. She can't be touched, uh, which is goes against common law and all the traditions that say, you know, there's an old saying in common law in England that says, be you ever so high, you are not above the law. That was kind of like the slogan in the American Revolution too, right? Um, but in practice, there are all sorts of people above the law, especially if you're connected to these you know, so-called elites. Um, and so it goes to the very highest level. Uh, the Prime, Prime Minister Trudeau in Canada admitted in June 2019, he said, yes, it was genocide. Well, referring to the residential schools and the continuing mass disappearance of Native people, especially in the West, at that moment that he admitted that, 
under international law, there should have been a war crimes trial convened because it says in the genocide convention to which Canada is a signatory, um, it says that that countries that admit to or are proven to have committed genocide must be prosecuted and punished. So, and yet, once again, Canada is getting away with this because I remember the reason somebody explained that to me, I, I went to the United Nations once to try to get the stuff on their agenda and, and failed, of course. But um, one of the delegates there said, no country is ever going to uh, address genocide because they're all guilty of it. Everybody did it. So who's going to open that can of worms, right? And, and, and the UN is central to this. Oh, yeah. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. So he can't go there looking to solve the problem. That's for sure. Well, um, we learned you know, the hard I, way. <laughs> I didn't expect the conversation to go this way uh, when originally preparing for the interview. But I think it's a really natural segue, Kevin. Uh, of course, you've got your book, Murder by Decree. The website is murderbydecree.com. But you've also wrote another book, Common Law Training Manual. And part of the reason why these people escape persecution is the land is not being operated in common law. We're actually operating in maritime law. So, Kevin, you actually are detailing some very practical ways and, and you're doing it by example of how to combat this. Tell us a little bit more about that and how the average person can start getting involved in, in practicing this common law. Well, you know, it came out of a practical situation where uh, the campaign that I began after the was thrown out of the church, it really spread in the native world. Um, and we face the practical dilemma of when you take these cases before crown courts in Canada, they were always thrown out. On three different occasions, we took the cases of survivors who had witnessed crimes, who had suffered these tortures. Um, we took them to various levels of, of the courts in Canada. Every time it was ruled that the court had no jurisdiction to try the crown or the churches for genocide. So it didn't work. We needed a whole new legal system like they needed the Nuremberg trials, right? And um, we tried to go into international courts and that didn't work because for the reasons I said, nobody wanted to touch this hot potato. So we did two things. We, within Canada, we've created our own tribunals that documented and eventually forced this truth out. But we also set up an international body, International Common Law Court of Justice in Brussels. And that's the case that brought um, action the against the Pope, Queen Elizabeth, 28 other people that forced his resignation, thanks to the Spanish government who had written him a letter saying, you might face arrest if you come to our country. That was just six days before he resigned in 2013. So, you know, it shows the power of citizen-led tribunals and investigations because we may not be able to go and arrest these people ourselves, but other police can. Other courts can issue arrest warrants based on the evidence that we bring out. So citizens have great power to bring this on any issue, um, you know, documented, follow due process, put the truth out there. And that information is uh, a weapon that even the most powerful people can't avoid. I mean, look at the point it's reached in Canada. Five years ago, no one would be talking about a mass grave of children. Now it's all over the press. Even the Pope's talking about it. New York Times is talking about it. And that's because you, the power of truth, you know, when documented and, and shared widely with eyewitnesses to back it up. I mean, it's undeniable. And so all they can do now is try to co-opt it and, and channel it in the way they want. 
I know that now they're, they, the government is in Canada is putting out the line that, well, not too many children died and it was just of natural causes disease. I mean, that's what they're saying a hundred years ago, but you can't deny the hard evidence as well, as long as it's documented in, in a proper court of law. And that's really what the common law training manual does. It shows people how to do that, uh, how to go about that and, and really take back the, the law into our own hands. And so I'm going to encourage all of our listeners, uh, go on to Amazon, look up Kevin Annette. Uh, he's got several books there, but that's one book that I think everyone really needs to get. And also Murder by Decree, which is a, a compilation of evidences that he's collected over the years. And, uh, and it's just overwhelming the amount of information and the work that Kevin has done. And by the way, if you search his name, you're going to see a lot of disinformation about him as well that happens to all of us uh it's been happening to jesse and i recently so you know we we kind of carry it like a badge of honor actually kevin you know sure um but you know we, we've been of the belief and we've been following things and watching the news closely and we actually see a big shift in power in the world right now we believe that uh an old system is is failing and going down right now but having the tools of this common law court in our arsenal is going to be really important in establishing a new uh, people-run order, a people-first order, a, a fair and just uh, system. Because you're right, listen, we, we see politicians on TV all the time breaking the law, you know, and no one pays a price for it. Just look at the scandals of the uh, the current prime minister. Anyone else would be in jail. You know, and he's been caught red-handed. We're not talking chump change either, you know. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it's true. And and it's, uh, you know, in America, I'm half American. My father was born in New Jersey. And, um, and so I've, I've been able to have a perspective on both countries up close. And uh, well, I don't like to generalize. It's true that in America, you're you're raised with the idea that ultimately the government is subject to us, that that we are sovereign. We don't surrender that sovereignty, um, you know, because you're citizens of a republic. Now, in Canada, you're raised with a different notion and that you're a subject of the crown. You're always being given this term subject and you don't have inherent rights. That's the old Roman notion of law that says the the ruler gives you privileges and can take them away. Like, oh, there's COVID, we got to like get rid of your right to assemble, right? They're just gone, they're privileges. But in common law, that different tradition out of really Saxon tribal Europe that said law serves the people and will do no harm to, to anyone. And it's in the hands of the people. That's what John Adams said in the American Revolution. He said the Republic will only survive through the independence of our courts, right? And, um, you know, so th that's the whole notion is that law is there to preserve our inherent liberties. They're born in us. They can't be, they're unalienable, right? Mm -hmm. um, these beautiful phrases out of the US Constitution. So I also found it really interesting that, just a side note, when Thomas Jefferson and Franklin and the others wrote the Declaration of Independence, he said, life, we have inherent rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that was the first time in history, anyone said, we have the right to be happy, you know, as human beings. Um, because John Locke, who was a political philosopher, wrote that uh, uh, he, he devised the phrase originally. He said, life, liberty, and the preservation of property. But Jefferson replaced that with pursuit of happiness. You see, it was this kind of more universal embracing of everybody. 
like the U.S. Constitution is for humanity because it says we all have the right to be happy and to be free human beings. And that is exactly what's under attack now. And, you know, the, the Indian people, the natives were the canary in the mine shaft that happened to them first. But now, you know, take mandatory vaccinations. That's been the law in, in Canada since 1874 when it comes to natives on reservation. You cannot refuse medical treatment or a shot in the arm or you go to jail. And now they're applying that Indian act to all of us. Like we're all on a big reservation. We don't have the right to, you know, in their mind to resist any of us. So it's all tied together. These issues are all about, you know, liberty or, or tyranny, <laughs> you know. Right. And, and the mindset is so much different. So I, I too, you know, I, I was born and raised in the United States. I'm in the Toronto area now. And I look at the difference and I, you know, look at, you know, the sheeple up here and you know just running around blindly and of course in in canada the media is completely controlled oh yeah uh, you know literally there's only rebel news which you know is being persecuted every at every turn uh as levant is a is a hero in, in canada in my mind as well uh, a truth teller who gets things out there uh, to some extent he doesn't go as deep as what you've done kevin in your body of work but it's uh what he's doing is also a very good service to Canada. And I like to give him a plug whenever I can because Canadians are starved for some truth. Well, you know, I had a this another little anecdote. Uh, you know, the same incident happened, one in Canada, one in the States. Um, I jaywalked, right, and and uh, in a busy street. And a Canadian cop pulls me over and he's giving me a ticket. And, of course, I'm saying, what's there to you know, give me a ticket over here. But anyway, as we were, the cop was talking to me, people made a big, they avoided us. Canadians, they kind of, oh, he's in trouble with the law. We have to, suddenly I became a pariah. They automatically take the side of authority. In America, it was the opposite. I was in Manhattan and uh, on another incident and the cop stopped. Soon there's a crowd of people standing around berating the cop saying, hey, leave the kid alone, right? Like bugger off. Like they didn't have that, that fear of authority. Mm -hmm. so-called authority that it's kind of inbred in Canadians. And that's what's being a real impediment to a lot of our work because I'm seen as a traitor for challenging the church and state about these undeniable crimes, right? You know, that's part of the problem. Well, our audience isn't going to see you as a traitor at all. They're going to see you as a champion. And, you know, uh, we're going to continue on in this story, uh, Kevin. In fact, I just got email confirmation and you're going to hear this for the first time, Jesse that we have a survivor in our audience who has been following your work, Kevin, uh, and actually was originally the person who said, hey, you got to get this guy on the show. Um, and her grandmother was actually in the schools and she has grown up with the stories and she's written music about it and she wants to come on the show. And, you know, she's <laughs> she's got every one of your books. I can guarantee you that. Uh, so I'm, I'm really excited to get her on and follow up on on this and and pursue this even further. Uh, there's so much to get into and and we as a people have to overcome this and have to overcome the tyranny uh, in, you know, the United States has the right to bear arms in Canada. You know, listen, I'm, I'm licensed. I've got a restricted gun permit and stuff like that, but we're really not allowed to carry arms in Canada. Uh, we're not allowed to defend ourselves. If someone breaks into your home in Canada and you shoot them, you go to jail. <laughs> right, because the, a crime is committed against the crown. And people don't realize that under the law, if somebody came and tried to kill you, 
under the law in Canada, that's not an offense against you. It's an offense against the state. And only the state can prosecute murder. I mean, it's this really twisted notion, right? Um, so, I mean, it's the whole thing about eyewitnesses is so important. That's how this whole movement came out. People like like William Coombs. I've had I do a blog radio show on uh, Sundays, and these the last few weeks I've been having eyewitnesses who survived uh, these death camps and Indian hospitals where they were experimented on. One of the reasons they're doing this this whole dig in Kamloops is to get rid of that evidence. Uh, they've denied a- entry to anyone. The band council, and don't forget, band councils are state-appointed chiefs, funded. They're puppets of the of the crown. And even in the residential school days, the chiefs would track down the the, the runaway kids and bring them back. That helped bury them. So I mean, the native chiefs themselves are implicated in these crimes. And so in Kamloops, they've got together with the RCMP and the coroner, and they've closed up the the site, and they're not telling anyone what's in it. They're not doing any forensic analysis. Um, <clears throat> that's a crime. Mm-hmm. to dig up a crime scene when you created it, right? Um, right. But that goes on right now. And what specifically do you, and I guess it's just a feeling, you can't prove it, but what specifically do you think that they're trying to hide? Is the number going to be greater than 215? Oh, it- oh yeah. The, our, our records going back over 100 years show that the average death rate of 50 to 75%, over half the children, that means it's no less than 60 to 100,000 children. And they're saying two or 3,000, which is absurd. Um, 60 to 100,000 children. Yeah, they admitted about a quarter of a million children went through the system. So you just do the math and uh, it's easily 100,000 based on their own figures. In 1907, 1949, 1968, officials are all saying the same thing in print. Half the children are dying. Well, you don't get that level of death unless it's deliberate because, uh, you know, Peter, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Peter Bryce, he was a medical officer. He did a study in 1907 that showed that half the children are done because they were taking the healthy and putting them in with the sick. And that practice stayed constant over many decades. So obviously it's deliberate killing. Because if they were trying to, they would improve the conditions. You know, if you're a white person, you got TB or put in a sanitarium before penicillin came along. But white, we've even got pictures of native kids sitting with open tubercular sores in a classroom together in 1912 in Alberta. So, I mean, you know, these genocidal practices were going on. And um, and yet, you know, the, the reason they're doing it in Kamloops is that that school was was a special center where they would bring kids who uh, fought, resisted a lot, who kept running away. And there were mk experiments going on in there. William Coombs, who was there, witnessed uh, not only priests digging graves at night and putting children in, but there was a special basement area under one of the buildings now where the kids were being, you mentioned pain threshold experiments. So those things were going on um, in these places. So naturally, they don't want any of that stuff to come up because it's proving that it's more than just the the acceptable harming of physical and sexual abuse, which, you know, they've allowed cases on that, but not about these other crimes. Where can people hear the eyewitness accounts that you're, um, do you have a special? uh, Yeah, what's the the address for the podcast that you do on Sunday? It's every uh, Sunday, 3 p.m. Pacific, uh, 6 p.m. Eastern, BBS Radio, dot com and then slash here we stand one word bbsradio.com slash here we stand 
all of the shows going back five years are archived and there are many eyewitnesses if you look through those shows telling their story well there's nothing there's nothing more powerful than people telling their story but before we just leave that uh that basement room and i and i really don't know how far this goes back because i didn't learn about the uh the extraction of the adrenaline and stuff like that until this year that was a new thing for me to pick up on but jesse do, do you think that was part of what they would be doing back then i do even 100 years ago yeah the the ancient practice i brought forward of it um you know goes goes all the way back even you know before in germany um goes back to blood the impaler um but it was a form of um, the witchcraft that they would do and they would access those different hormones and glands and put them into special tinctures and uh, very potent things, so. Well, you know what, it just as you're saying that, I, I remember my general rule now, everything goes back to Nimrod. <laughs> it just, yeah. it, it seems, you know. Well, Kevin, uh, listen, we want to thank you for coming on Right On Radio. This has been really, really eye-opening. Uh, I hope you'd be willing to come back and do some follow-up on this. This is uh, something we want to stay on top of. Because Very much. As a matter of fact, there was a notice that went out today. That the people in different countries, Native people and people in our movement, are forming an independent tribunal to do our own digs, you know, with accredited specialists um, to counter this uh, this whole you know cover up. Um, the reason I wrote Murder by Decree is it, it was a counter report to what they called a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which the government and churches set up themselves to of look course. into their own crimes. So we need a, a counterforcing Canada that does you know brings out the truth about these mass graves, and really that's what we're going to be working on. So I'll definitely talk to you again about all that. Yeah, and please, um, you know, whenever you have something, just give us a shout. We're going to get you. We're going to get you on, and I'm going to stay on this. And one of the things that's important for, you know, we're, we've been discussing Canada mainly today, and I know most of our listeners are international, uh, particularly in the United States, but Canada is a microcosm for most of the world. And what happens in Canada, and by the way, we have some really strong patriots in Canada, really strong patriots and as people are coming around and waking up to the realities of the world that we live in um you know canada has some strong soldiers and you know canada in many ways can lead the world in bringing down uh this evil because there's just no other word it's just pure evil that has been going on and that's who's in charge if you want to know how high this goes up it goes up to satan himself mm. yeah I agree. <coughs> thank you for the chance to be on. I look forward to talking to you all again. Thank you. Well, so thank you much. very much. You've been listening to Right On Radio. Thank you, Kevin, for joining and Jesse, as always, for being here. Uh, check out the podcast. I'm going to put the link in the description as well uh, for Kevin on Sunday and to hear the survivors. There's nothing like hearing firsthand experiences or even, or even children of the ones because, again, in that culture, the stories are passed down. Uh, but they, they put a lot of attention into detail and they're not exaggerated, uh, at least as from my experience. So it's really important and, it, and it's going to move your heart to hear those uh, stories as well. So please do tune into that. Uh, check out Amazon. 
look at uh, Kevin's books, uh, Kevin Onnet, just search his books. There's about 14 or 16 books that I counted that came up. Um, Murder by Decree is a compilation of all of the, uh, of a lot of evidences. And uh, the book that I'm particularly interested in is the Common Law Training Manual. Don't forget Jesse's book is also available on Amazon. We haven't plugged that in a little while. So uh, his Anointing Overflows is out now and it's a bestseller. Uh, and Jesse's sending out the oil. You can go to uh, cover the U cover the world, cover, cover the, the earth.us, earth. <laughs> so sorry, um, go in there, and uh, listen, at, on Tuesday, I promise, uh, as you know, there's been a price increase on our Creating Wealth Through Stewardship uh, course, however, I'm going to put the link below, we're going to do a Father's Day special, and it's going to be available as of today, it's only going to run for about a week and a half uh, from this point, and essentially, you're going to get the course half price. It probably will never be this low again. So uh, check out the Right On You course, Creating Wealth Through Stewardship. Again, thank you to Kevin. Thank you to Jesse. You've been watching Right On Radio. Remember, love your God, love your family, love your neighbor, and make a difference in your community. Who's right? Who's right? He's right. Right on radio. Right on radio.